Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AMT Tech Trends podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I am the director of technology, Benjamin Moses, and I'm here with the technology <laughs> analyst, Stephen Lamarca. Did you get your title right this time? Yeah, but I, I noticed you did your title before your name, so I wanted to do the same thing. Consistency, Ben. Consistency and copying pasting. That's great. <laughs> Steve, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Yeah, but I'm not doing as well as. Sharab Kumar Singh is doing. Um, <laughs> Who is this guy? Sharab uh, is one of our favorite people here at AMT. Who sadly, you know, he, he he's not only an Indian, but he's like an Indian civ- uh, civilian citizen. citizen. That's go. the word. Um, so he was here on a work visa for right. you know a couple of years, and he had to leave us to go back to India. Um, we may see him again soon, but mm-hmm. anyway, I see him at AMT as a a MT Connect developer. Um, his proper AMT title is research and development engineer. Um, he just works with Russ and MT Connect, and uh, he he told me that the the title that he does like on, that he has on LinkedIn is uh, information architect, mm-hmm. but he doesn't like it, and then he ex- explain it to everybody <laughs> what it means. But uh, anyway, Sharab. Um, when he was here, he was the biggest fan. Like we had a lot of fast food together. Mm. Like, uh, he, as, as a true Indian, uh, citizen, he, uh, he didn't tell his parents ever that he ate beef, but he loved burgers and steaks and stuff like that. But his favorite passion food that he's like fast food that he's the most passionate about is Popeye's. That's a solid choice. He loves Popeye's. We all, you and I, and Sharab love Popeyes. Like Popeyes is awesome. Russ loves Popeyes too. When you love a place so much, you know the nuances of ordering like the under the table stuff. Yeah, that's that's what to go. Like I, if it wasn't for you, I would have never known about the Cajun Sparkle. Oh, that's good. The MSG packets <laughs> that you can sprinkle onto your already MSG loaded chicken. The heart attack in a packet. But, but listen, you know, as long as as long as you're moderate about it and don't have it too much. But anyway, Sharab loves his Popeyes, yep. and he was literally in tears of joy this morning when he reached out to uh, Russ and I to tell us that India is opening their first Popeye's franchise location. That's amazing. And it's only in that huge country. (laughs) It's, it's opening 15 minutes away from him. Oh, that's a, so he is so pumped and excited. (laughs) Can you imagine the spicy Indian Popeye's chicken? If they, if they are doing uh, local, local uh, seasoning. Right. So like he's told, he's told me um, that, you know, they have other American fast food chains over there, but it's not like the same food. It's close, but it definitely has its Indian spin on it. Like, like he says that Burger King and McDonald's are so much better over there. Like, like, you know, they add so much flavor to some of the stuff and probably they have a lot more regulations on, you know, the kind of chemicals and (laughs) and bad stuff they can put in the food, but I won't get into that. But he also told us, like, he's told me crazy things like how Domino's pizza and pizza, they have like tikka masala pizzas. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Like (laughs) I want to go to India just for that. But, um, um, he, uh, I, I asked him, uh, do you think the Popeye, the spicy Popeye's chicken in India is going to be spicier than it is in the U.S. It was like, no, no doubt. Unquestionably, yeah. it will be more spicy than it is in the United States. But he's so in love with like the Popeyes he came to know at in over here in the States right. that he's like, I, I'm really hoping it's as close to U.S. stuff as possible. Though. That's cool. I know it's going to be better, 
but I miss the U.S. stuff is what he was saying. <laughs> That's so, good. Do you have a favorite? What's your favorite? Uh... Uh, so if I looked back at like my bank statements, <laughs> my favorite of last year was probably um, Bojangles. Oh, good choice. That's like Tim's favorite. You know, yeah. that's his, you know, that's what he grew up with. He's um, a Southern boy, isn't he? Southern boy. Yeah. And uh, here's my thing about Bojangles. I do love it. And we've got a great Bojangles location close to us. Uh-huh. Um, being outside D.C., and this is by no means the South, you have to drive 30 minutes to get Bojangles. Yeah. Um, in 30 minutes, 45 minutes if you want Waffle House. But that's <laughs> another topic. Um. The Bojangles that opened in 30 minutes away from here happens to be a very good location. My beef with Bojangles is one in five Bojangles locations are actually decent. Uh, Ah, messed up here. The uh, four out of five just have, I don't know if it's the workers or like what it is about, like the ingredients Mm -hmm. they get. Like it's just not made as well. It's not as good. Um. But one in five locations actually make good stuff, and we're lucky to have a good one, which nice. is why I'm going to say Bojangles. Um, my go, yeah. my go-to used to be Taco Bell. Uh, it's strong choice. People talk smack about it. strong choice. I've I've shifted away from that. So every Tuesday, uh, my daughter has a gymnastics class, and we do fast food on the way just because it's uh, more convenient. Yeah, uh, to get her on uh, practice on time. So every Tuesday is fast food day for us. Uh, so she's not a big fan of Taco Bell, and plus they slim down their menu. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the Mexican pizza and they that doesn't, that. it's gone. They said, Ben like this. So let's get rid of it. So I've shifted to Wendy's. Wendy's is not my new jam. Wow. Wendy's is another strong choice. The world's most expensive fast food. But it really <laughs> is. <laughs> you could go broke eating there. It is. It is so expensive. <laughs> You're right. I think like if you get like a small everything, if it's a combo, it's going to be $10. It's going to be $10. Yeah. I just order sandwiches there now. But Wendy's, they do do. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their burgers are actually quite good. Steve, kick us off with some additive content. Okay. Additive metrology, you know, metrology based your additives all over the news and it always will be at (laughs) least for, I don't know, for the foreseeable future. Yep. Um, But uh, from metrologynews.com, one of my favorite uh, sources, uh, 3D printed pressure vessel receives CE certification. So as we heard back in 2018, man, it's a long time ago now, but it feels like it was yesterday. So we heard back in 2018, the things that were holding back additive were standardization and materials availability. Yep. Materials availability is ramping up and standardization, as we've reported on, is ramping up. Um, but what's cool is there. this is a first for any kind of standard or certification in oil and gas. Nice. So the article was totally, it wasn't written by like, you know, material news. It was right. given to them by Shell. Okay. Um, my favorite oil and gas company. <laughs> I only fill up my tank with Shell. But, um, and this isn't sponsored, I promise. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> my credit card statements can show that too. Um, but uh, Shell has been playing with additive manufacturing and they made a, they 3D printed a pressure vessel mm-hmm. um, using laser powder bed fusion. Um, and basically this, this part can withstand 220 atmospheres. That wasn't the term they used or, uh, the bars. unit, but bars, yep. same thing. Um, and because of that, it got a CE certification, which is a first for the oil and gas company. Nice. I, I actually, I'm not explaining it. Well, let me read a quick <laughs> blurb that, uh, 
I, I pulled from the article. The vessel was manufactured through powder bed fusion or laser powder bed fusion or direct metal laser centering um, and is designed for pressures up to 220 bar. This certification is an improve, uh, important milestone for the energy industry because there are, to date, no legislation or global standards specifically for 3D printed pressure retaining parts in oil and gas. Um, this lack in regulations means that the, the use of 3D printed pressure equipment is generally not permit, uh, permitted at industrial assets around the globe. Shell printed this pressure vessel to gather research data and help improve the sector's trust in additive manufacturing as a uh, as a technical solution to source spare parts just in time instead of stocking spare parts for years. So. I know the oil and gas and shell probably isn't the only one to experience that. But like, you know, when it comes to pressure vessels, any mm -hmm. kind of pressure vessel, they're engineered in such a way that they know when they're going to break, where they're going to break, how many hours of runtime they can get on that part mm -hmm. before it needs to be replaced. And sadly, even with all that information, they need to buy in bulk. Right. They need to make sure that they have enough storage space to provide for the overhead of these spare parts when they need to do a replacement. And the cool thing about this is instead of worrying about that overhead, instead of worrying about that warehouse real estate and, you know, backlogging parts that are just going to collect dust that are expensive parts, mind you, you know, they can order just in time. Yeah. That, that is interesting that they're uh, looking at a slightly different problem that um, they're solving is, you know, obviously you can increase the complexity, increase the efficiency through uh, additive designs or more complex uh, features, uh, but also looking at uh, reducing inventory, right? Holding inventory is very costly. Like you said, you, you got the warehouse itself, but also someone's got to pay for buying and manufacturing all those pieces, right? Right. And, and they're probably doing large lot sizes because to amortize or reduce the cost of setup and things like that for these uh, complex parts. Mm -hmm. So like you said, if they can reduce the... Uh, um, lead time to manufacture these parts, um, they can definitely uh, save a lot in the whole overall supply chain. Right. That's cool. Because like you don't, not that Inconel or something like that goes bad right. over time, but <laughs> like, like that's a lot of money <laughs> yeah. to buy an Inconel part and you just yeah. don't want it collecting dust. You, you, If you're spending that money, you want it to go to work. And I'm very surprised. I, we did a few projects in oil and gas and they do use some very exotic, so Inconel is a choice, but they use a lot of abrasion resistant materials like uh, uh, was it Mon LK and some uh, um, um, L605 materials? They where, use a lot of Molly. Uh, maybe I don't okay. know. Okay, but in the end, you know the the raw material cost itself is a big portion of the cost of the part itself, right? So you have raw material, you got design, you got uh, manufacturing costs. Okay, but a lot of these are uh, significantly t uh, scale uh, higher than like aluminum or you know the less expensive steels. Uh, so. Uh, one, you know, one way they're also saving uh, by going to additive is just the material cost itself, right? The material that you're using in the process is significantly less. Um, so that, that that's that's really interesting. I'm I'm glad that they, you know they're taking a lot of uh, advantage of that. And, and Shell has been publishing quite a few works on additive, so they're definitely taking the lead from uh, on the oil and gas uh, on the outside side. They do do a lot of research. Um, and it's funny that they're doing research in additive because they also do a lot of research in additives. <laughs> 
It's going to be a long day. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I'll talk about uh, automating depowdering of 3D printed parts uh, for streamlining production. So like you mentioned, if, if you're uh, printing... Powder bed fusion. Yeah, powder bed fusion, right? So you've massive powder bed. At the end of the print, it's just covered in powder, right? You, you can't see your part. Right. You may see just the last layer that's printed, but um, you know when you take out the part, it's going to be covered and all your cavities <laughs> are completely filled with powder that still remains there. It's going to uh, look like a barber covered in talcum powder, <laughs> dusting all that off. <laughs> so in the overall processing, you have to be able to remove it. And, you know, the current state of the art is having a human just shake it around, blow right. sand around, which conceptually it's fine. I mean, you know, you, if you have a casted part to remove it from the gates and stuff, you you have a human that's going to use an axe grinder or a, a die grinder to remove it or whatever process. Yeah. Right? But one thing that a lot of people, I think, do gloss over an additive is the powder is actually very, very harmful and explosive. A lot of these powders in their small form are very, very dangerous. Yeah. So if you actually go to a, uh, a manufacturing facility where they're doing a lot of powder bed, uh, where they have a lot of powder bed equipment, um, they humans are in full respirators, right? They have a head headgear. Um, they're wearing gloves. They're, they have to protect their body so much in just entering the room and manipulating parts in there. Right. You know, I never, so I've heard of that before, yep. but I never thought about it. Like, you're you're right. Like if you look at like if 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 you Google or Wiki search a flashbang grenade, right? That's all it is is like you know flash powder, like right. gunpowder <laughs> and fine metal powders, yep. because that's what you're working with. Flashbang innards. <laughs> that's why that's wild. So in the article, they talk about automating this process. So removing the human as much as possible, but also Safety. improving the um, cleanliness of the part. Because you're going to have to post-process this part. So some of it could be just going to uh, subtractive manufacturing. Uh, but you could be welding on this part, too. So you got to be able to make sure that it's clean as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And any other debris is going to create porosity and uh, you have your welds fail. So it's, a, it's an interesting um, uh, technology where they're using um, vibration uh, and air or inert gas to um, get rid of uh, or control the atmosphere as they're uh, processing the part. And that's on like a... Uh, uh, rotating table so it can articulate around and vibrate and shake everything out. So it feels like it's a step in the right direction for in terms of um, uh, improving uh, auto uh, additive um, processes. So, sure. you know, you go from printed part to clean to the next step where if you really ha have the ability to line up these machines, then you can start adding robots and automating the process even further so you can get into uh, more um, uh, less human interaction in the process and uh, increase your throughput. So I think overall, this is a very interesting step. And, you know, taking a step back of uh, the human interaction with additive, that's something we don't talk about too often either. You know, how how should the humans interact? You know, we talked about how easy it is to design a part and then get to print. You know, you're not post-processing to every different machine. It's fairly uh, streamlined in terms of creating your, um, your output for the machine from a CAD file. But now we're looking at um, external uh, interactions on the machine itself. Yeah. So I think it's a very interesting look at uh, how additive uh, will further get into production manufacturing. Yeah. I think I think a huge, not maybe not huge, but a bottleneck that I've noticed, like when I was out in Texas uh, recording uh, the second season of Road Tripping with Steve, mm -hmm. um, a, a bottleneck in terms of like quality and manual intervention. Yep. Build plates, just build right. plates alone. <laughs> right. That that blew my mind. Yep. I mean, I probably should have known more about like what <laughs> went into that, but like you have to cut the part off of the build plate. Right. And then you need to resurface the build plate. Yep. 
There's a lot of steps. There's a lot. Let's talk about some automation. I'm ready to talk about it. I got a really good one later, but let's get into yours first. So this is such a cool article, and it's not typically by an industrial an industrial news source. It's from yeah. Wired.com. That's cool. But it really stood out to me because in one of our meetings that we were in recently with um, the AIM committee, mm-hmm. uh, somebody mentioned that it, it's some, some robotics companies, robot companies, are not even selling robots or robot solutions anymore, but, mm-hmm. and it's not even like the, this article by wired.com is now you can rent a robot worker for less than paying a human. Mm-hmm. Last part's not necessary. <laughs> um, but, and, and, and the rent part doesn't sound entirely accurate. I think the craziest part to me was you pay the company that provides the robot mm-hmm. by the hour, right. the same. So you're, Paying the company the same way you would pay a human to do that robot's work. Mm-hmm. And let's say you really like the robot's work and it was awesome. You can't – that company won't sell you the robot. Right. They right. only allow you to hire the robot. Yep. So – That is an interesting you know, shift in how you implement CapEx projects like that. I mean robots – we've talked about the reduction in costs in robots over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. But it's still fairly expensive, right, when you add Absolutely. the integration costs. So if you're able to – take, you know, $200,000 and spread it into just an hourly rate. I think it's a really interesting look at cash flow for the businesses. And, you know, it's a, it's a fairly big shift in how uh, CapEx projects could be implemented in the future. Right. Um, And it's, it's cool because like, let's say a job shop, they, they're, they like the robot, Mm -hmm. even if they want to buy it, this company won't let them buy it, which originally initially seems to me like it's a bad thing, but if you have, you know, a quarter million dollar CNC machine mm-hmm. and it's not running because you don't have to run it for anything. Right. Then you should be able to back out of it. You know? <laughs> but so this it's actually even though it's it's a traditional, it's it's right. it's unorthodox. It is. But it's pretty beneficial. Right. Right. Especially if you just you just want to at, at, at some point you are there. It is introducing a law of diminishing returns. Right. Right. You know, as for like, you know, you get like a Mitsubishi laser cutter. Mm-hmm. Those things will work for 30 plus years. <laughs> those things don't break. Right. I mean, maybe they break, but they can be fixed and and those things last forever. Eventually, as expensive as it might be, eventually you'll break even and then you'll start making a lot of profit off right. of it. Right. The robot, assuming you're paying little enough for it, you'll you can potentially start making profit right away. Yeah, it and you can on, see the profit yeah. right away, but yeah. it might get to a point where, oh, I'd be making a lot more. Like at years after right. using said robot, it may you may get to the point where it's like I could be making a lot more if I had initially bought the robot outright. Maybe, maybe. But and, it's such an advanced technology right. that even though they've been around forever, it's such an advanced technology that. Who knows what the next evolution of robots yeah. will be? Yeah. And I think we should investigate a little bit more because how do you sustain it? What does, you know, with subscription services, every, that's a new model for everything, right? Everything is a subscri- subscription service. Even cars, Porsche tested that for a while. Volvo tested that, um, you know, shifting away from lease and going to a subscription model. But the idea of this technology being um, a, an hourly cost, what happens when the new model comes out? What happens do we do we get upgrades? You know, what is the technology statement plan for these 
uh, devices that oh, are man. broken down a little Then long. that's going to get you into the old boomer argument. Like, oh, <laughs> they don't make things the way they used to be. You're right. They make them better. <laughs> I see the last article I got was from Carnegie Mellon uh, research team uh, selected to develop robotic technology to service satellites uh, and build structures in orbit. So we've touched on and off about um, manufacturing in space a little bit. And I feel like there's a big, fairly big wave, particularly with um, uh, more uh, space travel. There's more interest in going further in space, but we're launching a lot of rockets, a lot of satellites in general. And uh, the research from Carnegie Mellon will, head, will head a consortium selected by the Air Force uh, and the Scientific Research uh, Air Force Group to pioneer research into uh, robotic inspection, maintenance, uh, and manufacturing of satellites and other structures while in orbit. And, you know, they're going to focus on a couple of key areas. Um, you know, obviously artificial intelligence or machine learning will play a key part, uh, but they're going to look at hard and soft robotics, uh, additive manufacturing. Of course, you're in space with astrodynamics, uh, uh, control theory, and uh, space systems. Uh, and it's a fairly diverse group. You've got uh, other universities. You've got uh, University of New Mexico, Texas A&M, North of Grumman is involved, of course. Um, and the, the key thing here is I think the the – the, there's two things that I'm very interested in. This is um, uh, robots for like maintenance and inspection. I think have a lot of opportunity, right? We've talked, we have seen, oh, absolutely, a lot of interesting use cases where you know the uh, robot is used to make sure the assembly is complete, like make sure objects are in place, which is uh, very interesting use cases. Um, but also using them for um, supporting maintenance and overhaul of uh, like large airplanes or whatever, right? So it's. It's interesting to see potential um, uh, adjacent technology that's going to be used that, one, you have to verify the robustness. You're in space. That's the key. Once you're in space, the barrier f to get into space with technology is a confidence and robustness in that design. So I'm very interested to see, you know, if you're going to put a robot in space and you want to inspect something, you know it's going to inspect it, unless an asteroid hits it, of course, and then you get a movie out of it. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think they're... they're reliability uh, trickling down into manufacturing is very interesting from my perspective. Yeah. Um, and also I'd want to give a shout out to the arm Institute. They're a manufacturing U.S. Institute focused on um, robotics. And of course they're uh, based out of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon was one of the uh, uh, universities that helped spun up that Institute. So they've done some really interesting projects recently too. So heck yeah. I've been meaning to go back to Pittsburgh. We need to go back to P Pittsburgh. We had a great time. That was an awesome time and learn more about export controls. Maybe. Yeah, we need, well, I feel like I need to get caught up on them. It's been a while since we talked about export controls. Anyway, speaking of other exciting events going on, well, going on right now. Yeah. Um, start. It started yesterday, which yesterday was the 18th mm -hmm. of January, and um, it's going on today and could, finishes up, wraps up tomorrow. It's the Type 3D Printing um, event. Type spelled T-I-P-E, 3D Printing. Mm -hmm. And it is a series of webinars. It's really a virtual conference. It's yeah. probably one of the best executed virtual conferences I've seen. Um, and it's uh, it, it, it's it's provide it's hosted by the um, women in 3D printing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I sat in on Lisa Block of hybrid manufacturing. I sat in on her presentation yesterday and what's funny is she, she's with hybrid manufacturing you right. know jason jones uh, out in texas i got to meet her um 
last year on a Zoom meeting. Sadly, I didn't get to meet her in person, but she was really fun in the Zoom meeting. Sure. As fun as a Zoom meeting can get. <laughs> and I saw her presentation yesterday, which had that the presentation, what she was talking about was like had nothing to do with like additive sure. or manufacturing. But it was so energizing nice. listening to her speak. She has so much drive and and passion and fire. Um it's it's really cool. It was awesome. I, I can't wait to meet her in person. Cool. It's it's really like when I was fly when I flew out there to see hybrid, um, she actually at the same time flew to DC to do some uh additive or a hybrid manufacturer manufacturing advocacy right. on the hill. And um so I'm really looking forward to eventually meeting her in person. And but uh um yeah, she just you meet a lot of people. I've met a handful of people in life that have a, a, a big drive, right. you know, that are really motivated, passionate individuals. But I can count on one hand and it's less than five uh, people that have so much drive, passion and motivation that it actually radiates from them. Like yesterday when. I went into meeting room three to sit, sit in on, on this uh, presentation. I was out of it. Like I was, mm -hmm. I, I needed a cup of coffee badly. <laughs> I was getting ready to fall asleep. And then she started speaking and it, I was going till like 7 PM after that. <laughs> it totally, it gave me a second win. She's one of those people. And I hope, uh, looking forward to meeting her. I hope, yeah. I hope to see more presentations from her, yeah. but it was such a great conference. And, uh, I'm looking forward to today seeing some more of what they have to offer, but uh, typically takes place in uh, the second half of January every year. So be on the lookout next year for uh, the type 3D printing virtual conference might be in person next year. Maybe. I don't know. That's great to hear. I'm glad uh, you had a great experience on that. And I agree. It's a very interesting um, conference and speaking lineup. So get to meet cool people. Looking forward to see the uh, uh, next iterations next couple of years. Yeah. Steve, where can they find more info, info about us? amtonline.org slash resources. Like, share, and subscribe. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Bye. Bye.